Thank you. All right. Well, I want to uh, introduce to you Charles Spitznagel. He is a um, uh, in our uh, college and post-college ministry. He went to Haiti. Um, one of the things we were doing in our Fearless Financial Challenge was providing scholarships for uh, folks, younger folks, to go to Haiti and have that experience with God. So uh, let's welcome Charles as he comes to share that with us. Good morning. My name is Charles Spitznagel, and this is my story. And having been a Lakelander for five years now, I have heard of many great things happening in our church community. One of the many great opportunities I hear pop up in our church is the Haiti pilgrimage, which happens pretty frequently. Many people have shared life-changing experiences, which has happened through the Haiti trip. Um, So having never been on a mission trip to a different country, The Haiti pilgrimage has always intrigued me. Earlier this year, I received one of the six scholarships funded by Fearless, getting me to go on the Haiti pilgrimage. I was very excited to experience many of the things I had heard from other people. Before the trip, I intentionally tried to shield myself from having any expectations so I could really focus on being in the moment. As it was finally time to go on the trip, I felt like God put me in a very good place spiritually to absorb everything I was about to experience. When I got there, I realized I had found something I had never found before, home. For most of my life, I have lived in the middle of a secular Western civilization known as the United States. For me, one of the side effects of being in this westernized culture is looking to be included. In high school, I really struggled with being accepted and feeling loved. I always felt like an outsider and didn't feel like I had a community. My family attended another church when I was younger, but when my parents got divorced, attending church stopped. So one random Wednesday, one of my closest friends asked me, hey, why don't you come to Fuel? So I did. What I didn't expect, I would start growing roots in the strong community, not only in the high school group, but eventually our Lakeland community. So going back to Haiti, to me, going on pilgrimage is about coming home. What I mean by home is coming to rest in God and who God is. As we pulled up to the different orphanages, the kids were so excited that they would surround the bus with anticipation. So much so that as the first person stepped off the bus, it looked like the kids would pick them up and start crowd surfing them around the orphanages. After a day of fellowship at the orphanages, we came back to, a pl- we came back to the place we were staying and it was time for me to build and expand relationships in our community. This happened through playing basketball with some of the high schoolers who went on the trip and laid back chats about the highs and lows of life with the folks from our young adults, young adults group, The River, who have now become some of my closest friends. From, um, from coming to know people I have seen around Lakeland for years but haven't really interacted with, to our friend from Louisiana who decided to take a leap into our crazy community. I have never felt so close to my Lakeland family. Through the week, as I rode on the bus and waved at people I would only see once in my lifetime, I could see their faces light up just because I have acknowledged them. Going into Haiti, I had the idea that I would be giving people love and compassion, but I actually felt they gave me more love than could ever be given. It was shown through the holding of a hand, the attempt to communicate, following you wherever you go, and a simple companionship of the everyday. In Haiti, you can literally see love vibrating through the air. 
you see little kids who only want in life is to be held and known. They don't care about the luxuries us Americans receive and expect. And in the midst of the chaos that is poverty and disorder, they constantly rest on the fact that God is good. All throughout the service we attended on Sunday, they kept repeating, Messy Jesus, which means thank you, Jesus. And that is home, that we can rest in the fact that God is good in the midst of the hurt and the joy, in the midst of the simple and the extraordinary. We are all on our way home. Did you feel the power of the Holy Spirit from about right here? What a gift. Thank you, Holly. We praise God for all gifts he's given for use in his church. Amen. Amen. Well, I am here to introduce to you a very special guest, Rustin Smith. Now, Lakeland will turn 20 in October. And 20 years ago at the first service, Rustin was in the worship team playing lead guitar. So, uh, helped launch the church. If you were here 20 years ago, you'll recognize him immediately because he has not aged in the intervening 20 years, which I find quite unfair. But I know that somewhere in an attic, there's a portrait of him that just looks terrible. So, um, so no, uh, Rustin is now a pastor at Vox Day Community in Belton. He has been pastor there for 10 years. He's also a black belt in Jeet Kune Do, and he's also a Star Wars fan. So he and I always find something to talk about. Um, and uh, this morning, oh, also Rustin and I are in a spiritual order of pastors in the Kansas City area together for accountability and prayer and support. So I get to hang out with Rustin at, at least once a month. So um, I am very excited to hear what uh, God has given to him to share with us this morning. So let's welcome Rustin. Thank you. that. Nobody treats me like that at my own church. That's, you guys are so nice. Well, well, I'm a huge fan of Garrett and, and Dan and Marta and uh, gosh, Chris, you guys, what a great place, great bunch of people. I mean, look at you. Would you just look around? No. Um, well, I bring you greetings from Vox Day community um, on September 11th. Uh, may God heal our world. Amen. Um, and today I want to share with you something that I've been reflecting on for another kind of anniversary, as, as Garrett uh, mentioned. Uh, in just a few weeks, the, the church I serve and help to plant will turn 15 years old, 15th anniversary. And that very same day will be uh, the 10th anniversary of my being the, the pastor of that church. So 15 years and 10 years, I mean, 20 here at Lakeland, those are, those are numbers, right? Those are big numbers. And they, they cause me to reflect. And so this morning, I want to invite you to reflect with me. Let's begin with some words from Paul to the Galatians. This is Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Paul wrote, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. 
Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And here ends the reading. Now, these verses have been bouncing around inside me the past few months. I think I'm struck most by Paul's admonition, let us not become weary in doing good. When I was younger, I I used to read this passage as a a warning to the guilty. You know, you will reap what you sow. Uh, So, you know, don't be a naughty boy. (laughs) I think that's how we probably read most of the Bible. Uh, But now I see it more as a recognition of reality, that, that it's just reality. Whatever a person is will eventually become clear to everyone. And most of the time, it's not, not a perfect world, but most of the time, people are eventually known by their deeds. I mean, reality is a tough thing to cheat forever. And to Paul's audience, this was actually good news. Uh, these, these people are those who had done the right thing, who had suffered patiently through betrayal and abandonment. And Paul is saying, harvest will come. Everybody's going to get what's coming to them, so don't stop sowing now. Don't grow weary in doing what is good. Don't grow weary. Well, the last thing any of us need this morning is another talk about how we need to try harder. (laughs) The only way any of this holds together is not if we have to add more to our to-do list, but rather if we are becoming the kind of people who are making a habit of doing what is good. Who, who are sowing to please the Spirit, of not growing weary, of sticking with the journey when things get impossible. And we live in a culture that is dead set against any of us accidentally becoming people who know how to do this. Uh, we are by nature and nurture and choice a restless, dissatisfied, distracted people. Yeah, go Chiefs. Uh, we... <laughs> And I think we become even more that way as our culture shapes us each into becoming a certain kind of person. We are each always becoming a certain kind of person. But the truth is, it takes a very long time for any of us to be anything. I mean, being anything is slow work. Being a a great swimmer takes years of practice. Being a competent musician is a long, arduous process. You know, being a great husband... Well, that's not even really possible. Um, that's why we have Valentine's each year to remind us. that. So, so I'd like to, to consider our lives, to really consider our lives and, uh, from a particular viewpoint along this journey of being and becoming who we are or who we will be. And that particular viewpoint is the viewpoint from the middle. The middle. The middle... Uh, of our journey. Now, middle is a loaded word. It is evocative in a lot of directions. A lot of things come to mind when I think of the middle. The first thing I thought of was, uh, you know, being the youngest in my family was having to ride in the car in the middle seat. You know, you have to sit on that, that hump and you don't get to hang your arm out the window and, and look cool. Uh, anybody? Yeah. 
My, my grandpa once told me that when there are three men riding in a pickup truck, uh, this is how you can tell which one is the real cowboy. Do you know which one? It's the one in the middle because he doesn't have to drive the truck and then he doesn't have to get out to open the gate. So he's got it made right there in the, in the middle. That's a true story. Uh, he, <laughs> he also told me that's why cowboys roll their hats up on the side so three of them can fit together in a pickup truck. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true. Um, but I want to suggest that the middle, <laughs> in our imagination, generally is not a good thing. I mean, think of middle school. Yeah? I mean, it's not high school and it's not elementary school. It's, it's in the middle. You know, it gets defined by what comes before it and what comes after it, but it lacks a real identity of its own. And, of course, middle school is when all kids begin to explore how mean and miserable we can make our relationships. Um, I'll just leave that there. Uh, and then there's the middle ages, the Middle Ages. It's another pejorative middle because it's not the era of classical antiquity and it's not the modern enlightenment. It's, it's in the middle. And if you don't think that's an insult to the Middle Ages, just consider the other label for the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. I mean, how would you like to be alive during the time when people would eventually call it the Dark? I mean, you could be the smartest person in the world during the Dark Ages. And then there's this. I brought you a photo. There's another middle. Uh, can you... Is anybody right there? There you go. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, you got it. It's, it's Jan Brady. It's the middle child. Uh, how many of you are middle children? Yeah? Um, God bless you. I'm, I'm married to a, a middle child, so I have great empathy for the plight of the middle children forever in the shade of both the older sibling and the and the younger, uh, loud one. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and then, of course, some of us have given some thought to the term middle age. I mean, not me, but people I know. Um, you know, or midlife, which is a, is, a, is a phrase normally followed by a third word, the midlife crisis, the midlife crisis, middle age. These are not compliments. Uh, these are phrases caricatured by, by men now with, you know, more weight and less hair, uh, trying to recapture something of the past. Uh, I, I bought a motorcycle a couple of years ago, and a friend asked me, how old are you? <laughs> yeah, as if to imply that I might be grasping for younger days. Some friend. Uh, and, and why is there such a predictable crisis in the middle of life? Well, the point is, the middle of anything rarely denotes anything good. And yet, most of life takes place in the middle. There are times of beginnings, and we love beginnings, don't we? I mean, New Year's parties, birth of a child, wedding celebration, starting a new exciting job, you get a new car, a new house. And I would say we are also partial to good endings, graduations, Retirement banquets, weddings, no way, that's the beginning. Um, we, <laughs> thanks for that. We, we get giddy over, over relationships, don't we? I mean, we spend crazy money on weddings and people inconvenience themselves grandly over the beginning of a marriage. 
And then almost immediately it goes from being a party to a negotiation about how the dishwasher ought to get loaded. Uh, you, you get married with this great rush of excitement and longings, but most of marriage is keeping vigil with someone you can, you can never know any better than you are capable of knowing yourself. And, and by keeping vigil, I mean cleaning the bathroom and taking out the trash and waiting on the phone with the cable company about the billing error. That's what faithfulness in marriage turns out to be in the middle. Uh, our kids still get excited in August when school's starting. They get equally excited in May when school is ending. You know, but then there's February, <laughs> the long, slow middle. We're, we're pretty good at beginnings. We're pretty good at endings. Yet most of our life happens in the middle, where we have neither the euphoria of the beginning nor the satisfaction of the end. I think we live in the middle spiritually as well. Sure, there are joyous, even desperate sometimes beginnings to the journey of faith, and there are moments along the way filled with wonder and transcendence. But often, when we think we're losing our faith, when God is not real to us, when we've lost that sense of wonder, I think that is precisely the experience of being in the middle on our journey of faith. And I've been looking into this over the past few years, not only for myself, but because of my experience with so many people that I love, and sadly, so many who have just checked out or or given up. And what I've found is that our faith, this Christian faith, has a lot of wisdom about this experience and language that describes and even predicts what this experience is, but we just don't know it. And so we don't have vocabulary for how to name this middle experience in faith. And so when we bump up against it, we don't know what it is. We only know that we don't like it as much as we liked the beginning. And so we'll do anything often to avoid it or resist it or ignore it. I mean, this is what happens in the the cartoon version of the midlife crisis, right? It it isn't just trying to reinvent yourself in the middle of life. That can be a good thing. I I used to have a mentor who told me that we should all think about making a significant change, uh, you know, vocationally every 10 to 12 years. He he says it takes about uh, about half that time to get good at anything, and then it takes the other half to make a real contribution, and then it's maybe time to think about beginning something new. I don't know if that's always true, but it's something to think about. But a crisis is not that. A crisis is not a healthy reinvention time. A midlife crisis is characterized by running from the despondency of the middle. It's running from the mundane. It's that that part of life with braces on your teeth. That part of marriage that is repairing the doorknob. You know, that part of work that is just shuffling papers. And the middle of our faith journeys is similar. We begin to experience the middle of the journey and we don't like it. It feels lacking something that the beginning had. And so often we'll do anything just to recover or recreate those feelings of the beginning. You know, so in marriage, one goes out and has a romantic fling just to feel that buzz again. In faith, sometimes we chase trends, the newest worship song or responding to another altar call because this time it's going to be different. Or even uprooting our relationships or commitments to go begin again because that's more exciting. And conveniently, it helps us avoid our despair or despondency or depression. And of course, of course, there are good reasons sometimes to, 
to start fresh. Uh, But most of the time, most of the time, running from things that are hard is never healthy. And when we resist or ignore and uh, avoid the middle, we end up with a faith that, that lacks a vocabulary to ever guide us through to the goal, to the good end for which we are all made. Why do we do this? Why do we avoid, resist, ignore the long, slow middle of things? Well, I think there are a few markers of the middle that make some sense of this. There, I'm just going to name three experiences that are indicators or signposts that we might be in the middle of our journey. And when I name them, you will see why we prefer beginnings or endings. One signpost of experience, uh, of experiencing being in the middle is anxiety. Anxiety. And, and with its flip side, depression. Anxiety can be a sign that we're experiencing the middle and we, we don't know what to do with it. Now, anxiety is a, is a heightened sense of, uh, a, a heightened or excessive state of unease based on a real or perceived threat. And I, I don't even know that we can diagnose the level of anxiety that, that we have because it, in our society we breathe anxiety. Um, but often the experience of anxiety comes with the onset of the middle. Uh, we come upon a place in our journey where the adrenaline of the beginning has, has dissipated and we aren't driven forward any longer by the new and the novel and we look ahead into a, a fog and we get scared. And what if there's nothing there? I've, I've lost the romantic feelings I began with. What, will anything else emerge that makes this relationship livable? I've lost the curiosity and the, the thrill of learning new things all the time in my faith. Is there anything out there in the future that I can inhabit? And our anxiety grows. And the flip side of that is depression, which is strangely related to anxiety. It's a different way of processing the same experience uh, in some ways. Like instead of getting overly engaged in controlling the future, we feel crushed by the weight of not even being able to engage in and depression, uh, it isn't just feeling sad, it's feeling this very heavy weight that is pressing down on you. That's why it's called depression. Depression and anxiety. What, but what do we do with this? What do we do with anxiety? Well, we run from it, of course. <laughs> we, we get active, we exercise, we medicate, we get religion, we sign our kids up for 20 soccer leagues. Uh, you know, we find any escape we can. That, that's the cliche. It's, it's either drugs or Jesus. That's, those are your options. Uh, Lauren, Lauren Winter's an author who talks about one time she tried to give up anxiety for Lent. And, and, and a friend asked her, well, what will you do when Lent's over? Will you celebrate the resurrection with an anxiety attack? Um, but anxiety and, and or depression can, can be a signpost of the experience of the middle. That's one. A second signpost experience of being in the middle is loneliness. Loneliness. Now, what I'm really talking about is the word lonesome. I mean, to be lonely is a physical thing. It's to be physically apart from others. To be lonesome is to have the feeling of being apart from others, even if others are around, but we won't be grammar nerds about it. I just want you to know that's how I'm using the word loneliness. Loneliness can be a signpost that we're in the middle. There are different sorts of loneliness, too. There's the kind of loneliness that a person can feel even when lying in bed with a spouse, when there is no intimacy. There's the kind of loneliness of realizing 
If my flight gets in late, does anybody even know or care? Um, If I don't show up to the thing, does it really matter? And what do we do when we experience loneliness? Well, we text 100 people hi, (laughs) uh, or something equally productive. For me, being a pastor has been a bit like running a long race. In the beginning, uh, one is in a crowd of excited runners and a crowd of spectators, but later in the race, the field spreads out, (laughs) and the crowd is absent, and it's just you and and the wind. And the race isn't over, but now you're unaccompanied in the middle. It can be lonely. Loneliness is a signpost that you might be in the middle of a journey. Third signpost experience of being in the middle is boredom. Boredom can be a signpost that you're in the middle. We see this maybe most clearly in, the, in that cartoon version of the midlife crisis, you know, or in the, the classic seven-year itch in marriage or you know, maybe you never feel anxious or lonely, but boredom can be a sign that we're moving deep into the middle of something, and we, we usually aren't making good decisions if we're acting out of boredom, either by giving into it and just checking out or, or trying to break out of it by doing something rash. Now, what I want to suggest here is that the middle is an essential part of any journey, and how we get there is where we are going. And the way that we live in the middle, which is the majority of any journey, is as important as the beginning, and it usually defines what kind of end is possible. And so when you get to the middle or you begin to experience the signposts that you might be approaching the middle, what if you don't ignore, avoid, or resist it? What if you don't go out and buy a sports car? What if you didn't run from your dissatisfying relationships and and trade people out for new friends or spouses or churches? What what if all this disorienting, difficult experience is not an indicator that something is wrong at all? What if the experience of the middle is intended as something good that we must go through in order to grow into all that we are intended to become? Now, I mean exactly what you're probably scared that I mean. (laughs) Let's take it one by one. So anxiety. What if when you encounter anxiety, you just said, oh, hello, middle. (laughs) I I guess this means we're making progress on this journey. (laughs) Francis de Sales is a 17th century priest and writer. He addressed anxiety in, in something called the introduction to the devout life. He said, unresting anxiety is the greatest evil which can happen to the soul, sin only accepted. And Lauren Winter wrote about this. Uh, She said, the sales antidote to anxiety is twofold, half positive, half negative. Positive, do pray and do not do anything that might actually address the object of your anxiety. So don't get online and check your bank balance. The action will just make you more frantic. When, when you're conscious that you're growing anxious, commend yourself to God and resolve steadfastly not to take any steps whatever to obtain the result you desire until your disturbed state of mind is altogether quieted. Oh, don't do anything. <laughs> During some anxious times 
along my journey, a couple of things have helped. I went jogging. Uh, moving uh, is a good way to come back to my body. Uh, another was reciting a Wendell Berry poem. Uh, he's good for anxiety. You should read Wendell Berry. Uh, I just said it over and over some nights. But if I couldn't act or make a choice from a calm state, I would just try very hard not to act at all. Some good things went undone. But I tried to refuse to let anxiety dictate action. I just tried to trust that this was working something out in me that, that needed to be worked out before it would move on. It's anxiety. And then there's loneliness. What if, instead of trying to flee the experience of loneliness, you just embraced it? What if you didn't run from it, but you just welcomed it? I like this advice. Uh, Somebody said, if you're lonely, dim all the lights and put on a horror movie. Then you you won't feel like you're alone anymore. Um, (laughs) I didn't say it was good advice. I just said I liked it. Um, Loneliness can be deadly, but people of resurrection don't need to be afraid of death. What if when loneliness comes upon you, instead of reaching for your smartphone or your bottle of wine, you just said, I'm just going to welcome this for 10 minutes, <laughs> five minutes if that's all you can bear. What, what if there's something important that you must learn from making friends with loneliness? What if you aren't alone at all, but you're just in that part of the race where the crowd is thin? But maybe you're still making great progress anyway, if you just keep going. And then there's boredom. Did you know that there are educational scholars who study boredom? Yeah, I know. Maybe you thought every educational scholar studied boredom. Uh, But there's a researcher called Patricia Meyer Spax who insists that boredom, as we think about it, which means a demand to be entertained or amused, was not a term coined until the 19th century. She wrote, quote, if people felt bored before the late 18th century, they didn't know it. (laughs) And so there are several theories, uh, apparently, on why students get bored and, and what they are naming when they say they are bored. And one is profound. I mean, because often we think that a kid gets bored because they aren't challenged enough. For, for example, if you have a gifted student, like, you know, like my children, it's very bright and handsome, um, that, that they'll get bored with work that is below their level, yeah? But there's this other theory that suggests that when kids say they are bored, it really means that they're being asked to do something that they don't know how to do. So a third grader who's asked to complete a math worksheet he doesn't know how to do will say, it's boring. Or or a student in an urban environment asked to write about life on the farm will report, I'm bored with this. Boredom is this sense that, in this sense, is actually a resistance to authority. We get bored when we're being asked to do something that we don't know how to do or, or or if we can do what we're being asked to do. Now, conveniently for us, we tend to get bored with God or church just at the points where we may feel called to deeper commitment, to harder things. And we don't know if we can go deeper. 
or we just don't know how to go deeper because nobody has shown us. Thomas Merton said that the only thing we're attempting to escape when we flee boredom is ourselves. And when you start to feel bored on your journey of faith, what if instead of fleeing to a more exciting worship service or a better preacher, you just said, oh, wow, I'm bored. <laughs> I'm reaching the middle. I'm making progress. I'm still on the journey. I, I should keep going. I wonder what God is asking me to do right now that I don't know how to do. Maybe instead of stimulating the boredom away, we could just ask boredom to be our signpost forward. So anxiety, loneliness, boredom, I'm sure there are others, but these are three signpost experiences of the middle of a journey. And when we encounter them, I think we should slow down and pay attention to how they are helping us locate ourselves on the path where we need to adjust our practices or change our trajectory or, or how maybe we just need to bear with the process that is helping shape us forward into what we must become if we are to become what God has designed us to be. God will not be mocked is another way of saying that reality is a stubborn thing. We will each be whatever we are becoming. And so much of what we become is not dictated by the beginning or the end, but the experiences that we have and the choices that we make in the middle, in the middle. The late baseball writer George Will once observed that the importance of what he called the middle 42. Have you heard this? That there are 162 baseball games in a season. And he said every team wins 60 and every team loses 60. The difference between first and last is the middle 42. Crowns are won in the middle. Chess players will tell you that there are only so many, so many ways to begin a chess match. The beginnings of chess matches are always scripted. The real mastery comes in what they call the middle game. The middle game. The middle game is where patterns cease and real creativity begins. This is where the game is unpredictable and where winners and losers are sorted out. Masters are defined by the middle. Painters will tell you that all of painting is about mastering what they call the middle tint. If you look at any painting, only, only very small bits are usually like totally saturated darkness and only small bits are very bright, but the overwhelming majority is about how an artist deals with the middle tint, these, these infinite hues and degrees of saturation and texture and color. Masterpieces are made in the middle. And so here we are. September, somewhere in the middle between Easter and Christmas. Maybe it's time for you to make peace with hard things, anxiety or depression, loneliness or lonesomeness or boredom. Our journeys are made in the middle. Your marriage is made in the middle, your vocation, your parenting, your God-given dream, your life is made 
in the middle. So I invite you now or next time you meet one of these difficult experiences that you might discern if the difficulty is something to be fixed or rather if it's something to welcome as part of the path that leads further up and further in the life of salvation. Let us not become weary in doing good. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Amen. Thank you. God bless you guys. God bless Lakeland. Thank you, Rustin. Thank you. Uh, Sue, for our benediction, uh, which is going to be a little bit, uh, let's try to find the Celtic blessing if we could. Peace of the Lord be with you. All right. Uh, I'm coming up here with announcements to give you, and I'm a bit embarrassed. There are two beginnings and two endings. Don't we love those? Um, I need you to do this, though. I need you to remember that you heard this message today about the middle. I don't know if it's in some corner of your Bible or somewhere, but write down, like, I think I might be anxious. I think I might be depressed. I think I might be bored. I think I might be lonely. I want you to remember and hang on to that because in parts of this church you can't see right now, um, a lot of folks are working really hard to uh, cook up a different way of doing ministry, and, and Rustin used the term signpost like a dozen times, right? The signpost of the middle, you kept hearing him say that. And we were coming up with something we're calling milestones ministry. Now, we've always had that for children, but to have that for adults that will take us through the beginning and the end, but also through the middle of this is something you're going to see in the fall. And I want you to be aware of where you are, because many of you probably are in the middle there somewhere, so that when this milestones is talked about and announced, you'll know that that is for you. So um, I, I think the Lord is, is doing something here and that you had this message to help kind of alert you to the fact that you may be somewhere in that journey because uh, here at Lakeland, we're getting ready to do something with that. So do some thinking today about where, where are you on that. Um, All right. This is a great, great word of blessing we'll say to each other over the middle. Amen. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.